All right. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here on this holiday weekend. We are uh, class five of six for us. Now, most classes are going seven. Uh, we're only going six because I'm just going to be out of town. So, when I'll be here, I'll be watching baseball in Arizona. Um, for, while you're taking, yeah, I'll be watching them play the Cubs actually, and watching them beat the Cubs actually. So anyway, class five. Um, so we are uh, going to finish up today. Um, actually, class five, and then jump into class six, and get halfway through that, and then jump in class six and seven. So as you can tell, I'm trying to squeeze in seven classes in six weeks, and so there'll be more material. I'll email you more than what I'm able to cover. Um, but the basic notes uh, you have in front of you for an outline, and then I'll email you, as always, the content of the, the notes as well. All right? Um, I am recording. Thank you. And uh, any, any questions before we get started? All right. Well, let me pray for us. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the opportunity to study this, uh, this topic. Lord, uh, your scripture says a lot about, and uh, we've discussed the role of angels, and Lord, um, how we have, as you could say, helpers. Uh, in the universe there, um, that unbeknownst to us, un un unseen by us many times, uh, working, on ministering on behalf of us, to us, uh, fulfilling your purposes and designs, and God, we thank you for that. Uh, we also have an enemy that is opposed to us, that is at war against us, and um, Lord, you give us a lot, of, a lot of indications of scripture about how exactly uh, Satan and his demons will, will um, attack us, and how they will come at us, Lord, and I pray that uh, you help us to continue to unmask uh, the deceit and things that we see uh, through Scripture, and uh, encourage us tonight in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, so as you can tell on your um, outline there, I've, we didn't get a chance to finish last time, so we have worked our way down to letter G um, and look at the different ways of kind of um, exposing demonic strategies. Okay, Scripture has a lot to say about that. We spent a lot of time in last class looking at a bunch of those. I've got two final ones before we jump into our next section. Uh, the one we'll look at uh, starting tonight is uh, hinder the mission through uh, called domination and darkness. Uh, this particular point, by the way, I will elaborate much more on <clears throat> toward the end of this class tonight, but then the next class we'll spend a lot of time on this one. This is the question of, you know, get into uh, the whole idea of demonic possession and um, those kind of ideas, we'll cover that in detail, and I'll kind of give you my take on, on what the scripture says on that. Um, so for this one, this is um, um, becoming to realize that, that when we, we understand even our missions conference, we understand mission, we understand evangelism, it's important to understand what scripture has to say, that those people who don't know Christ, um, they haven't just lost their way, um, they aren't just confused, though all those may be the case, and are the case, the scripture actually implies it's not even just their own sin that they have, have been blinded them to, to, to Christ, but Satan himself and his demons actually are actively involved um, in their life, many times unbeknownst to them. It's not like he's, his goal is to make them all Satanists per se, but has actually blinded them and, uh, and actually rules over them in many capacities. Let's look at a few of those. Uh, the first one I'll put here is uh, ownership. And this just comes from um, John eight forty four. Jesus said, you are of the father, your father the devil, uh, and your will is to do your father's desires. That was a very strong statement. Remember, not to just anybody. That statement was made to the, the religious elite of the day that he told them their father was the devil and that their will is to do his desires. Um, we, we find also Paul elaborating on this in Ephesians chapter 2, describing what our life was before Christ. 
Remember verse 4 of chapter 2 of Ephesians begins with the but God uh, in his grace and mercy. Well, verses 1 through 3 describes what it was like before we came to Christ. And it says this, We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, kind of the world system. And it says following the prince of the power of the air, that would be Satan, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's a, a synonym or a description of of unbelievers, sons of disobedience, their lives are described as ones of disobedience, and he is at work in them, among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 1 John 5, 18, says, we know that everyone who has, uh, has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him, and so we'll look at this verse later, that there's a sense of, of protection that goes around the believer when they come to Christ that they didn't have prior to that. That would be the obvious implication of the verse. Apart from Christ, he is able to touch them, right? And so there is a, uh, a pretty significant idea of, of, of uh, Satan very much at work and demons very much at work. Again, his, um, Satan's hand may be detected in many ways of thinking uh, that prevail in non-Christian society. Uh, just as Satan is full of pride and deceit and slander and bitterness and jealousy and lies and hatred, so is that a pretty good description of our surrounding culture that is apart from Christ. Uh, James goes as far as to say that the worldly wisdom here, he says in James 3, 14 through 15, he describes it here, it comes down, uh, is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Right? So kind of the world system is demonic at its core. And again, it doesn't mean that everyone's running around with their heads spinning around on their shoulders and, you know, and all the kind of crazy horror movie stuff going on, but it does mean that they are, they're under the oppression and under the, the, really the ownership, as I'll say, of Satan as he's the prince of the power of the air um, of this world. And so it should be stunning to us to think that as you look at an unbeliever, it's not just that they're lost in their sin, which is true, they're also very much, in some ways, you could say victimized um, by, by demonic activity in ways they don't even see it. Um, demons are energizing the, un, the uh, disobedience of unbelievers. Non-Christians are, are demonized, we'll call it that, can be at least. Um, but it does imply that their unbelief and unrighteous behavior is stimulated and sustained by the enemy. Yet they're still morally culpable for their actions. Uh, number two, uh, enslavement, even more intense language, it comes from Scripture. Um, again, he coerces them many times to do his will while they're still culpable for that. Um, he's not, again, not possessing everyone or turning everybody into Satanists, uh, but he is working at everything he can to keep them from coming to Jesus. Okay? Um, his desire is a human race and culture that's anti-gospel, a culture full of younger brothers and older brothers. Right? If you go to the parable of the prodigal son, as it's called, there's actually two sons that are lost. The older and the younger, the younger, the rebellious one who's out in the culture, immersed himself in it. The, the older is more are a symbol of the, the religious leaders of the day, very close to the house, as it were, very close to God, but yet far away. They won't go in, um, but they're held captive in many ways to do his will, even in religious circles. Uh, Acts 26, 16 through 18, Paul said, He rose up and stood upon your feet, for I have prepared to you, appeared to you, for this purpose, to appoint you, this is an angelic visit, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, in me, and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, and whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan, 
to God, right? From the power of Satan to God. So they, that again implies that that's, that's the power or the realm in which they are under. That's the world that they're operating in. Again, many times unbeknownst um, to them. 2 Timothy 2, 25-26 speaks as that God may perhaps grant them for repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape... Again, escape the idea of once being held captive. Escape, not just from their own captivity of sin, but escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I mean, that's strong language describing what, what realm and which existence an unbeliever is in. Uh, one more, or well, two more actually. First John 3.8 again says, Whoever practices, has practice of sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so again, another... Um, idea of, of the realm there. First um, John five nineteen. We know from God the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so again, that's all under as an unbeliever. They're part of that system, part of the understanding. One more, number three, and we'll talk about the implications of some of that later. Number three, blindness. Um, unbelievers are blind to the fact that they're blind, and that's really the saddest part, right? They're blinded by their own sin. But uh, Satan's desire is to blind them, as Saint Corinthians four uh, four tells us, is to blind them from uh, seeing uh, the 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 light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Right. So he's blinding them to the beauty and the value, um, trying to display Christ as unvaluable, unworthy, unsatisfying. Whatever words you want to put in there, that's kind of the goal of what he is doing. Um, we also find in Matthew thirteen nineteen, as soon as someone starts to understand or even the gospel starts to go out, he's very aggressive even, as the parable explains here, that the, um, anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it. So they're confused, they have questions, implies interest because they're listening, they're, they're, they're not understanding. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart so it was sown along the path. So even there we find Satan even trying to grab whatever seeds of the gospel that go out, grabbing them and, and snatching them and pulling them um, away. And so we find that that's a, that should be a very sobering reminder as we, even as we reflect on the missions conference that again people are lost out there. It's not just a again lost their way or, or it's, life is sad or whatever way you want to put it. Yeah, they are lost and they are going to a real place called hell. It's where they're destined for without unless they come to Christ. But at the same time we find that Satan and demons are actively involved too which makes us then explain why when you go to 1 Timothy 2 and Paul begins to describe what's the first thing we are to do as a church. First thing he says in 1 Timothy 2 is not preach. It's not a whole church service. First thing he says is to pray for unbelievers. Actually, it's the first thing he says we are to do. Why? Because it lies in the hand of God. I'm a, we're, not, we're, not, we're going against not just the hardness of the human heart. We're going against demonic forces that are also holding captive and blinding. I mean, there's a whole realm going on that we are, in, we are impossible that we ourselves can penetrate that the Holy Spirit of God has to do. And so that's what makes prayer so vital. All right. Any questions? Letter, oh, it should be letter H. I got letter G up there. Letter H, hinder the mission through distortion and deceit. Now, uh, we've covered this a little bit already, and, and I'll email you some more of this material, and we'll go over this again. But we had mentioned before that Satan floods the world with uh, false teaching. Okay? Um, uh, false teaching full of heretics, cults, false religions, and the Bible is again clear that Isaiah says that there is no other God besides 
Yahweh besides the God of the Bible. That's it. There is no other at all. And that's true or it's a lie and the whole thing's a lie, right? That's, that's, a, that's a statement repeated over and over again. If that's the case, then that implies that everything else out there that claims to be a God, okay, no matter how nice and warm and inviting or whatever it may be, is demonic at its source because there is no other God out there. And it's not, holy angels aren't going around pretending to be gods, right? So the other option is to understand that there's demonic activity behind all false religions and false um, and cults and all of that. We find, um, again, and, and again, it meant to be very deceptive, right? 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 14, Paul says, And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their, in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Right? And that's speaking to, again, that's, that's false religions, false gospels, right? Things that look like Christianity, smell like Christianity, but aren't the real thing. Um, that's what he's talking about. Paul said this would happen. He said in um, 1 Timothy 4.1, again, they will depart from the faith, devote themselves to the deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And again, understand, teachings of demons is not Satanist occult activity per se. It can be, right? But that's not, that's not necessarily what Scripture is going after. It's not, you know, the, demons aren't like, hey, Satan is really, the right, is really the right God, go worship him. That's usually not the, not the tactic, right? It's more like, yeah, Jesus is a good guy. Um, <clears throat> Jesus is a good teacher, right? Jesus is that, but he's not, he's not God, he's not Savior, he's not those things, but he's a lot of good things. You see, that, that's the deceitful part, that's the doctrine of demons, actually. Uh, not, not as much as even the other side, overt side. Um, this is the idea that, you know, Jesus doesn't really care what you say or do, he doesn't care whatever path you want to take to God, you go right ahead, whatever lifestyle you want, you go right ahead. That's the lies of that, that's that teachings of demons. It's demonic at its source because it's directing people away from the true and living God. All right? Um, again, this, is, uh, this does not mean, important to remember, <laughs> doesn't mean that everyone who disagrees with you on any particular point of doctrine doesn't mean that they're, they're a, a demonic at its source, okay? So you've got to keep that in mind because sometimes people get like, well, they disagree with me on this, like, this eschatological point of like, I believe this, you know, in the future is going to happen and they must be demonic. Right now, that's not, it's not necessarily where we're going with that. But we are saying anything that, that takes away from the glory of God, everything that takes away from the gospel of God um, is, is demonic at its source. Um, and so we'll find this. I mean, you find within the church, and again, it's subtle. This is the, one part of the whole course is get you to understand is that demonic activity is not overt as much as it is subtle. As much as it's deceitful. We I mean, go all the way back to Genesis 3. We saw that, right? I mean, it was, it was just twisting a little bit of part, taking truth and just turning a little bit. Partial truth, right, is no truth. It's not, there's no half truth, right? It's either full or none. And, um, and you find this all the time. When I was in L.A., we had, I mean, it, it's funny now. Um, it wasn't funny then, but it was like every Sunday it felt like there was some false teacher coming into the church. And it, it was L.A., so it was... We, I don't know if you ever watched the old TV show, they don't have it anymore, it could be called Smallville, and um, they always had what we called the Freak of the Week, which is some new character that came on that was kind of crazy. That's what we had, we just call it the Freak of the Weeks here, here they are, you know, they're coming in. Remember the very first Sunday we opened up, the very first Sunday, this one guy, I'm preaching, I remember this guy sitting in the front row, and we probably had 100 people on the first Sunday show up, 
and they're from all over the place. I mean, it was a, it was super fascinating. But this guy was in the very front. He was, he was tracking. Like you're like, oh, this is great. This guy's really tracking. Afterwards, he's going around. You see him talking to people, and, uh, and all of a sudden, one of my one of the guys was help, was uh, part of my core team was helping launch the church. Came over and goes, hey, I think you need to go talk to that guy. I'm like, what? I go like, he's trying to get people to go follow him. I'm like, what? And so you walk over and sit down with him. He's the nicest guy, super good personality, like very welcoming. And you got to talk to him. He's just straight as can be. He's like, yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm like, what? Like, what? Are you? Get out of here. Like, you had to, first day, first Sunday, I had to kick somebody out of the church, you know. Um, we had a guy show up. I mean, we had a guy show up, like one guy dressed up like Moses um, with his staff and his long white robe claiming, you know, he was Moses. Um, we had one guy come in. This is the best one. Actually came in with, with he had uh, Pastor, whatever, like Pastor Bob or something, embroidered on his shirt, right? And so he came in, and I got, I got like, I probably have like 30, 40 new people every Sunday showing up. So, I mean, all, I mean who know nothing. So that kind of stuff is really dangerous. They come in, Pastor Bob, you know, on the shirt, walk around telling everybody he's the pastor. And most people don't know that because they've never been there before, you know. And he's, like, encouraging them to go with him and leave. And I'm like, what are you, get out of here, you know. Um, remember one Sunday we had a guy, one of my associate pastors was there. He came to me that morning. He was not given to this kind of behavior, but it was, so it was very interesting when he came to me. He just came to me that morning. He was kind of all, um, kind of, you know, that was a ruffle a little bit. I'm like, what's going on, man? He goes, man, I had a dream last night. I said, like, what? He said, I had a dream this guy was going to show up today, and he was going to try to persuade people, you know, a different gospel. I'm like, yeah, what did it look like? He goes, he looks like that guy. <laughs> and he points over, and the guy was there. I'm like, okay, let's get him out of here. You know, so it was like we had a security team just leading false teachers out every Sunday. I mean, they were just <laughs> showing up um, all the time. And so, I mean, it's, it's um, Satan is very much active uh, in those in those places, and is active here. You may not see this many times. Um, again, Satan's called angel of light, so we should expect uh, false teaching to be luring, to be attractive. Again, if it wasn't luring and attractive, it wouldn't exist, right? Um, in the book of Second Peter, we find some some great insights, and we we'll kind of take you through some of Second Peter and Jude for this part to help understand some of the things that uh, that is described there in Second Peter. Chapter 2, we find in that book that uh, false teachers had emerged, and they were teaching, basically their main kind of doctrine they were teaching, it was no future return of Christ. Okay, that was kind of, there's no imminent return, there's no future return, it's over. Uh, and so Peter said, in Second Peter 2, 1 through 3, he said, um, he said this, he said, false, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of, of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed in their greed. They will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Uh, in this passage, we find um, the false teachers, they lack, they lack authority. If you notice the word false, three different times uh, used, false prophets, false teachers, false words. Uh, they also promise peace when God actually threatens judgment. It's very similar to Jeremiah 28 and 29. Uh, they deny, it says, they exploit, um, but they will be judged by God, he says. He'll bring swift judgment because um, God will not tolerate false teaching. Uh, again, it robs him of his glory. Look at a, a few things in this Second Peter 2 passage. I've got in your outline there. Number one, they may make it into membership of the church. Second Peter 1, and also verse 13, we just read the first one there. It says, they arose, notice the language, among the people. 
And then verse 13, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Um, it's interesting, uh, similar language is used in Galatians and Jude. Notice again the language, Galatians 2.4, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom we have in Christ. Uh, we find Jude 1.4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Right? This is the language we find in the New Testament describing that people are going to slip in. They're going to creep in. You know, that's the language there. They're going to get in. And the language get in is the idea. New Testament, is the word membership is not used. But if you go through and you find people belonging to one another, accountable to one another, they're always in. All right? And so th this idea is they will creep in at times. Uh, and they'll come in, look great. I've had this happen in L.A., they, they say all the right things, they sign all the right documents, they affirm the right theology, they look to live the right life, and next thing you know, they change faces. Uh, when they get in, and they start secretly luring people away. Um, and one guy was a total womanizer who came in, we had to discipline him out because he came in, said all the right things, all the right things, next thing you know, he's preying upon single ladies in the church. Um, and a guy was stealing money one time, uh, we had to get, we had to do four church disciplines in one year. Um, and so it just was always happening. Something, but they get in, and again, you have all. It's very. That's why I had to be vigilant to guard the door of the church when it comes to membership. We always say as pastors, it's like the door is wide open. Whoever wants to come, you know, Sunday morning, you come to a class, free to come. No membership required, right? When you get to the membership, that door gets a little bit tighter, right? There's affirmations to be made um, of the local church and its doctrines and its beliefs. And then that door gets a little tighter as you get into teaching roles, right? You need to be very closely tight. When it gets into pastor and deacon roles, that door rolls really, really tight, right? So it just gets smaller and smaller as you get more into leadership and more into, into leading and guarding the church. Number two, uh, they will seek to twist the truth. We find 2 Peter 2.2 2 says they follow their sensuality because in the way of truth will be blasphemed. Um, this is... Um, this sensuality word has got sexual overtones to it. A lot of the actual false teaching descriptions, interestingly enough, in Jude and in Second Peter have sexual overtones to them. Uh, that there's a way of trying to advocate uh, a sexual lifestyle that goes along with the culture and bring people and woo people out of that. It's interesting that there is a lot of, um, in the New Testament at least, you remember when the churches were started, there was a lot of people coming to Christ that one spouse would, one spouse would not. That's why 1 Corinthians 7 Speaks about a spouse, you know, has an unbelieving spouse, and they decide to leave, uh, to let them let them go. That's what the description is in First First Corinthians seven, because there was a lot of that going on, and so there was people very vulnerable. Obviously, if you're a spouse and your spouse is not with you, and you feel you know, you're following Christ, your spouse is not. Obviously, you're very vulnerable in that way, and these false teachers will find their ways in to kind of prey upon the vulnerable um, emotionally and physically. Um, he says uh, in Jude one eight. This is interesting here because it says here they, because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. They'll be, they'll be mocked. Um, the gospel will be mocked. Uh, and interesting enough, will be mocked because it's, because it's just like the world. I know we think like the, the gospel will be mocked because of adherence to it. Actually, people mock Christianity when it actually molds itself into the shape of the world because you know they look at it and go like, well, what the, you guys aren't different than me. You live just like I do. Why would I want to? Be apart with you. I got better things I could do with my time, right? And so that's the idea of being blasphemed. And again, that's what these guys were very arrogant um, in their views. In First Peter one eight, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, the father of the flesh reject 
authority. This is a description again of these kind of false teachers within the church. Um, they were, um, um, again, relying on dreams. You know, here's the dream that I had, and they're kind of going after that and denying the scriptures, the father of the flesh, rejecting authority. Um, again, interesting enough, it's not, there's two sides of false teaching. There's the side of, hey, reject biblical authority and go with your own authority and follow the world system. That's one, that's the younger brother track. Um, there's also the older brother track of Scripture what is about, that people can go the other side and rely upon their own works and self-righteousness, right? And that's really a false gospel as well. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, the Spirit expressly says, then in later times some will depart from the faith, and here it is, by devoting themselves to those deceitful spirits and teaches demons, through the insanity of lies whose consciences are, are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God would create to be received with thanksgiving. It's interesting. Like that, that's part of the teachings of demons, was, hey, marriage is bad, and, uh, and certain foods you need to abstain from to be wholly accepted by God. That's a false gospel, right? Just like, just like anything else you can imagine. It's just as dangerous, and sometimes more so. Uh, number three, we'll seek to exploit the church financially. We see a lot of, again, I said sexual terms, but also financial terms. Uh, 2 Peter 2, 3, it says, In their greed, they will exploit you with false words or condemnation from long ago. It's not idle. The destruction is not asleep. And so this, this exploit has the idea of business transactions. These false teachers are not selling a product to help their hearers. They're pushing defective goods to take their own financial advantage. There's a lot of money to be made in the Christian world, Okay. Um, and you have to be weary of that. You have to be aware of that and know that just because someone stamps, you know, Christian on it or someone puts a fish symbol next to their name or business doesn't mean, doesn't mean they're Christians, right? There's a lot of money to be made. Christians, unfortunately, can be very gullible. They just kind of just, oh, they're a Christian. They must be a good guy, right? Like they the, may be, right? Like the Jesus shovel, shovel. The Jesus what? The Jesus shovel. Shovel, yeah, the Jesus shovel. Thank you. I was like, the Jesus, I thought you said the Jesus show. Like the Jesus show? Is that a show? Probably not good. And so it says here they, they exploit them with stories. They, they, uh, actually, they make up these false words. They make them up. Um, again, similar to 1 Timothy 6.5, it says, the constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Okay, so they're using that as financial gain. Uh, number four, uh, they, will, they will have uh, bold speech, Peter says. He goes on to say this in verses 10 through 13, he says, bold and willful, they do not tremble, because they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrong doing. So it's interesting, he, you know, the idea is boldly arrogant. Uh, three times the word blaspheme is used in this passage. Um, it means to speak with a sense of irreverence, especially about God. Um, Peter says their, their voices have become nothing more than the grunts of animals. Um, it's kind of the idea. Um, they, uh, he also says they, <clears throat> they try to tear down the leadership of even in the church. That term, glorious ones, is, seems to be a synonym in, in, in Peter's epistles for, for leadership within the church. And so they, they seek to tear them down. If they can tear them down, obviously they can lift themselves up, right? So that's always the goal if you ever find somebody. And it doesn't mean they're wrong, because there could be a reason why in churches that they, the leadership has to be removed. 
But there's also a case where you need to be careful of people. This is why Paul would make the First uh, Timothy five would make the the statement where he say, "Hey, don't don't make don't bring accusation against an elder within more than unless you have more than two witnesses, right?" So there's a reason for that. You have to be careful if you see people going after leadership, right, and being vigilant trying to take them down. You need to be careful of that. Not saying that couldn't happen and couldn't be legit, but you need to be careful of that um, as, uh, as this is what the kind of pattern of the false teachers are. They're trying to take down leadership so they themselves can emerge uh, in that place. Um, number five, we have wandering eyes. Second Peter 2, verse 14, their eyes are, it says, full of adultery. There again is that sexual kind of overtones to the word, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Again, you can follow a man's eyes and they'll lead you to the desires of their heart. And that's what, he, what he's talking about. They're hungry for pleasure, and especially power of being in control and in the area of sexuality. It's kind of those two elements, sex and power is kind of what they're going after. Um, the idea of the language, again, is kind of like that one guy I told you about in the church. Is this a womanizer, kind of a player, like looking for easy prey and people who are susceptible. I was just reading a book, um, The Mingling of Souls by Matt Chandler. We have that in our resource center. It's a marriage book. It's really good. I've been reading through that recently, kind of working through that. I'm going to teach a BI course in the fall on marriage and family. But um, we were, I was kind of reading through that material. He was explaining how he had a guy in his church and he was, you know, he was, he was interviewing him, having a good meeting with him. And also he starts realizing the more he asks questions, the more he realized this guy was actually he asked him, why was he coming to the church? He wasn't a member. He was just visiting. He said, why was he coming to the church? He said, well, you know, we find I, I wanted a, a good Christian girl, was his statement. I wanted a good Christian girl. And, uh, and he said they would you know, we'd go out in the clubs on Saturday night, and then he'd come in on Sunday morning and try to find himself a good Christian girl. And that's what they were looking for, because they were easy. It was kind of his idea, right? So, again, this is stuff you always got to be watching after. Men, you always have to be watching after that kind of thing in the church. You always got to try to guard the ladies from that kind of thing. That's always something to, to keep your eyes open for, because that does exist. Um, let's see, number uh, six, there we are. Greedy hearts. I think I'm, let me see where I'm at. There we are. Yep, number six, greedy hearts. It says that their hearts are trained. And there it is again. Here's the financial term again, greed. So it goes, it's always, it seems to go one of those two ways, sex, power, money, um, the idea of the greed, never satisfied with enough fame, enough fortune. Uh, trained is the word, actually, a Greek word for gymnasium, where they, they work out. <laughs> they work out to be uh, trained in greed. They work really hard at it to be uh, perceptive and, and um, persuasive in that way. And so, again, they always want more power, more control, more leadership. Always be you know, looking around. If you're looking at people who are just really hungry for power and leadership roles, like... <clears throat> That's always a warning sign to look after. You don't want to, want to see that within the church. Um, people hungry for that kind of thing. Is that, is that the right uh, down below there? 2 Peter 2.14? Yes, that is correct. Mm -hmm. What was uh, the reference before that in Jude? Oh, I skipped some. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of skipping over material. Oh, okay, never mind. That's okay. I'll email it to you. That was Jude 1.4 is okay. what I was, I was giving you there. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, number seven, I'll be full of empty promises. Um, and this is, uh, Peter goes on to give some pretty graphic details here. Listen to the, this verse. This is a passage, Second Peter 2, 17 through 22. This is what he says. They are, these, are, these are good descriptions to help understand this. They're waterless springs, <laughs> mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved 
for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise from freedom. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse to them than the first. Uh, that's an echo from Jesus' statement of the Gospels. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It's a very graphic um, language. He describes them as waterless springs. And again, in a, in a, in a Middle Eastern context, a desert kind of context, that was, that was important. Waterless springs. Uh, we've already talked about that... Um, that uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, the Word of God is described as being a place of water, a place of refreshment, a uh, place for the thirsty to come. And that's what these guys are. They're waterless springs. They're an, o an oasis. It looks to be an oasis, but it's a mirage. Uh, they're promising water. They're promising refreshment by what they're offering. And the reality is that it's, it's again, it's empty. It's unsatisfying. It says they are mist driven by the storm. Uh, again, a mist promises rain and hopes for rain. The farmers, again, needed rain. They didn't have irrigation systems like we have today. And so they needed that. And these false teachers deliver nothing more than a passing haze or fog. You know, it looks like it's promising and it just blows right away. Um, it says they make loud boasts. Uh, they promise, I love the, the phrase that they promise freedom, that they themselves are enslaved. It's like they're sitting in a prison cell and you come to visit them and they're trying to persuade you that inside the prison cell is free. Like, come on back here and join me. And that's how he's kind of unmasking what they're going after. Um, Jude has similar language. He says this way. He says in Jude 1, 12 through 13, these are hidden reefs. Hidden reefs, a ship, right? You don't see it. You hit it. Your ship goes down. They're hidden, hidden reefs at your love feast, so at your kind of fe uh, fellowship gatherings. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. It's a very graphic language again. They're not feeding the sheep. They're just feeding themselves. Waterless clouds, again, that kind of promise of uh, water but not giving it. Swept along by winds, so they're very, um, they're not grounded. They kind of go along with whatever the latest, greatest ideas are. Uh, fruitless trees in late autumn, uh, when they should be bearing fruit, they were not. Uh, twice dead, actually the Greek, Greek letter is just two words, it's dead, dead. That's what it is, they're dead, dead. Um, uprooted, so they have no, no, root, no root beneath them. Wild waves of the sea. Uh, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, and again, not reliable guides. They, you know, they're never in the same place um, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And so this is a, it's very graphic. I and mean, there's a lot of passages that describe this, but Second Peter 2 and Jude chapter Jude 1, or Jude the whole book, um, is going after uh, these kind of descriptions for a reason. There's a reason why the New Testament talks a lot about that. Again, Christians, we can be very gullible and not think that um, there's anybody around us or anybody we, anybody we listen to or anybody we read that's a false teacher in any way, but they could be. Uh, you need to be very careful and very discerning of, uh, of what it is that you're, you're listening to and what it is that you hear. Uh, question 30, kind of important. Why does God allow false teachers to drink to church? Like, why? Why are they even allowing me? Obviously, he's sovereign. Obviously, he has the power to be like, no, you can't get in there, right? And he loves the church. It's obvious, too. A uh, few reasons I'll give you. Uh, a, uh, brings humility. Um, 
God's intent is to grow his believers. Uh, James is going to describe he's going to grow believers through trials, right? That, that's a central part of his sanctification process is through trials. It's also at times through even allowing um, demonic activity to occur. And again, all within his design, uh, a good passage for this is in 2 Corinthians 12. 7 through 9, we find Paul giving his testimony. Remember, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he described all of his burdens and all of his hardships, right? How he was beaten, how he was shipwrecked. Above all these things, he said, what? Is my, what is it? Yeah, is his burden or care for the local churches, right? That was his, of all the, the beatings and physical ailments he got, the, what hurt him the most and what pained him the most was the burden of the local churches. So we get in chapter 12, next chapter. He says, uh, so to keep me from being too elated, or, or prideful really, by the surpassing grace of the revelations, he's revealed many things, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. The three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Um, this language, when he talks about this, um, this messenger from Satan to harass me, the word is, um, a lot of times been translated, you know, buff, buffet or buffet, I guess, your body. Um, the same word, buffet, it's, it's actually the word for a bone-crushing hit. It's kind of think of a boxing match or MF, MMA, whatever it's called, like fighting, where you just got punched so hard, it kind of is a bone-crushing blow. Um, that's what Paul felt. He felt he got sucker-punched, right, kind of in the gut. And... Um, and, and really, if you go in the context, what I believe, there's a lot of debate over what is this thorn in the flesh. Um, I believe based on context and based upon what is the most hurtful thing for Paul is that there was false teachers in some of his churches. And that was just grinded at him. And part of, the, the part of what Paul needed to learn through this, and God allowing even that to happen, and we'll talk about more reasons in a minute, was because he needed to stay humble. It wasn't Paul's church. It was Jesus' church. And, um, and part of that humility need to cultivate in his heart was to have to let God take care of those churches. He could, as much as he could do, again, he was, remember, traveling, going to different places. I mean, he wasn't able to hold them all together. And uh, some of them were falling apart. We know that because we can, many epistles that come from where he planted churches are full with all kinds of false doctrines and false teachings that were going on. Corinthians is one of the main ones there. And so that was part of what uh, what that meant. And God was, again, sanctifying Paul even through that, allowing that demonic activity to take place through, through false teaching. Another one is to purify the church. Again, these aren't methods that maybe we would come up with, but you know what? It's what God came up with, and so we're going to submit to him. He said, um, Revelation 2.10, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Obviously, the implication, God is, based on Job, he's allowing him to do that that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll, go, you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. Um, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.12, don't be surprised. Um, the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, if something strange were happening to you. Uh, we learn in uh, Luke 22, remember, Jesus came to Peter and said, Hey, Peter, just want you to know, Satan asked permission, right? To sift you like wheat. And you, my, my thought when I first heard that, I remember when I, when I first heard that, my, my thought would have been, you told him no, right? <laughs> would be like, that's what I would say. Peter probably, knowing Peter, he probably did say that. Um, you didn't tell him no. And Jesus didn't tell him no, did he? He said, and I, you know, I allow, and basically allows him to do that. And the word is actually plural. He's desired to sift you all, and especially you, Peter. Um, but when you have 
basically fallen, you know, uh, I pray that when you have fallen, you'll be brought back again, which is exactly what happened. If you read, if you read um, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you're going to find a huge amount of connection to what Jesus taught in the Gospels. So there'll be a lot of phrases, a lot of terminology, a lot of lessons. I mean, 1 Peter 5 is Peter, you know, shepherd my lamb statement, you know, remember from John 21? Um, that's, that's, that's happening. Right? God is, he, Peter's doing exactly what Jesus restored him to do, but it was through the failure and through the hardship and through the denial even that Peter learned a lot of compassion, empathy, and strength to be able to go out and be the man that he, God, God had him to be. It was just, again, part of that purifying element. Um, there's C. Again, these are very God-centered reasons, but uh, may not be comfortable to you, but it is what it is. Uh, prove God's holiness and sovereignty. Um, Again, though many of the passages we have seen, we note that Satan always has to ask permission. There's no, he's not sovereign. It's not two gods competing. It's not Star Wars, you know, and the, the two different sides here going on. Um, this is the case with Job, same with Peter, as we mentioned. But it's not always easy, and this is, again, we looked at this a little bit last time, and biblically it's just, you have to wrestle with it. it it's not always easy to just say, Satan did it, or God did it. Not always that easy in some passages in Scripture, right? Um, such cases as Peter, both are true, uh, with the understanding that God is God's will is sovereign, supreme, and overriding, even over Satan's. But their respective goals are clearly the opposite, right? So Satan's goals and what he does and God's goals and what he allows him to do are totally different. And yet again, to say Satan did it, God did it, is, can be a little bit interesting. So, for example, here, here's the, one of the cases, 2 Samuel 24, 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. And like, oh, okay. So God was behind that. And then we find First Chronicles 21.1, same story. Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. You're like, what? Who did it? <laughs> What's going on there? Um, it's, uh, you find the same uh, with Saul and Abimelech. Listen to these, First Samuel 16. I'm just creating, by the way, more problems than answers, but I'm just giving them to you. Um, 1 Samuel 16, 14 to 15, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a hurtful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a hurtful spirit from God is tormenting you. Uh, Abimelech in Judges 9, 23, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. The leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Now, it's important to note, and these again Old Testament passages, the Old Testament writers didn't always distinguish between what we call primary and secondary causes of something. Okay? They didn't always distinguish between those two. I know we want to we want to have a primary cause and a secondary cause, and Old Testament is like this is what happened, you know, and it kind of mixes those two together. Um, in all these cases, if we if you looked at them in detail, all these cases the individuals are culpable for their actions. Uh, even Saul admitted to his own culpability in 1 Samuel twenty six twenty one. Um, the book of James makes it super abundantly clear that God himself is not evil, and God himself does not sin, nor does he tempt any man, right? And it makes it super clear in that passage. Um, but he does, in his sovereignty, allow Satan to do many of those things, right? As a, he could be a secondary agent, I guess you could say. And so Paul makes it clear that, again, in all of that, God works all this ultimately for, for uh, his glory and our good. It's a mystery, but... He says this, uh, James 1.13, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And yet, uh, Romans 8.28, we know that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his 
purpose. So always remember that in the end, Satan will only serve God's ultimate purposes. Okay? He's only allowed to do what God allows him to do. And that may be a lot of conflict in your mind, a lot of tension and all of that. That's just the reality of Scripture. And we've got, it gives us God's still holy and righteous and perfect. It doesn't tempt anyone, yet he allows Satan to do many of those things uh, for his, again, his, his holy purposes. John Piper put it this way. He said, Satan, in all of his pain, serves in the end to magnify the power and wisdom and love and grace and mercy and patience and wrath of Jesus Christ. It's his ultimate purpose in that. Again, going to the book of Job, it's interesting to think about how the book of Job ends. Um, we expect, maybe if you read it for the first time, that God will say something like, when he gets to Job, you know, and Job, all right, I got my hearing, right? That somehow, you know, after Job kind of gets angry and explains some things, his problem with God, that God doesn't respond with me, like, look, don't blame me, Job. I didn't do it. <laughs> blame Satan. He's the one that did it. He doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't pass blame off. He doesn't make excuses. All he does is actually go, Job, you don't understand. You're, you're as a human being, you can't comprehend my knowledge, my wisdom, and my power. And that, that's what he does. He just goes off for like four chapters on, on his sovereignty, his power, his wisdom. You just got to trust me here, Job, right? It's basically the point of it. Um, he doesn't pass it off and say it was all, you know, Satan's fault. Uh, again, no apologies, no explanations, no real clarifications even to Job's questions. And at the end of the day, God used all of what Satan did, if you read the end of the book, to, to bring Job to be the man that God wanted him to be and to use him for those purposes. With that story, letter D, prove the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Uh, sometimes you may have heard that as the um, uh, perseverance of the saints. I like preservation a lot better. Uh, puts the, puts the, uh, the onus on God to, to preserve. Um, if you really look at the book of Job, you could really look at it as a whole book. Just step back from it and look at the whole thing. And it's really a treatise on this theological position. God keeps his own. No matter what Satan does, Throw at him whatever you want. Really, that's what he basically tells him, right? Satan says, oh, I'll, I'll do this. He'll deny you. Oh, okay, go right ahead. He's not going to deny you. <laughs> oh, you want to take his, take his health? Okay, go ahead. He's not going to deny you. And sure enough, even though he struggles, he has his, you know, he's, he's human. He has a lot of struggles with all of this. At the end of the day, by the time the whole book's over, Job, Job is still God's, and God still has him. I think that's really the whole point of the entire book, is that God does keep his own, no matter how bad or how hard Satan may go after them. Um, there's not a single soul that Satan has ever stolen from God's providential hand. And I think that's just echoed throughout Scripture, and Job is a good example of that. There's other reasons, but that, that's the four kind of kind of put there for you. Any questions? All right. Good job, class six. <laughs> um, now, as we get into this topic of spiritual warfare, um, this kind of how do we, how do we fight, um, Christian participation in this battle will, will not seem extraordinary or spectacular most of the time. Okay, you need to understand that. You, our world or film and stuff will kind of give you this extraordinary, supernatural, I'm not going to here teach you how to exercise demons. Okay, that's, uh, I don't think that is, that is in par with Scripture. It's much more on the passive side of things than it is the aggressive side of things. Much more defensive than offensive is what we find throughout, throughout Scripture. You find things un, pretty unspectacular, right? Obedience, prayer, faith, confession, allowing God's work to shape our thinking, uh, His word to shape our thinking in our lives. So, what is spiritual warfare? All right, let's look at this. Um, whoops, my bad. 
Hit the buttons too fast. There we go. Uh, it's, a, it's the very real, though mostly unseen, conflict between four different groups of people or persons. <laughs> God, Satan, and by that I imply his demons, angels, and humanity. God, Satan, angels, and humanity is really the conflict that's going on. A lot of times you think spiritual warfare, you just think of you and, and demonic activity or something, but the Bible actually implies that this is happening. There's a much larger group involved in this situation. So there are four levels of spiritual conflict or warfare. I've got them listed for you there in your notes. Uh, letter A, the conflict between God and Satan. That's the primary conflict we find in Scripture. We find that uh, Hebrews 2.14 it says, speaking of Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So there is a conflict going on, which echoes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when the promise was, the curse was made, that death would come into the world. That was through the, through the works of Satan, again, under God's sovereign plan. First uh, John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You could probably come up with lots of reasons why the Son of God appeared, primary of which would be to seek and save the lost, right? Things like that. First John says he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That puts it up there as a, that's a description of why he came. It's a pretty high priority. And so there's a big conflict between God and Satan. Our last class, we'll look at, we'll, we'll survey scripture and show you the drama between conflict between Satan and God all the way through and how, how God was supreme through all of that. We'll end our class with that kind of connection. Uh, letter B, conflict between holy angels and evil angels. There's another element of conflict. Uh, Revelation 12, 7, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. That's the symbol there of Satan. And the dragon, his angels, fought back. So here we have pretty clear conflict happening. We got a, we got a war, and we got someone fighting back. All right? uh, we find uh, Daniel has a lot to say about this. Daniel 10, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Would still be 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Those king statements or kingdoms or princes, uh, or we'll talk about later, or, or demonic um, in their source. Daniel 10, 20 through 21, uh, speaks again about a prince of Persia and a prince of Greece, and Michael standing by his side. Uh, these are all, again, descriptions of angelic warfare that's going on, again, most of the time unseen to us. Let us see the conflict between Satan and saints, okay? This is the one we usually lean towards or think about when you think of spiritual warfare. You think of this one. This is only one of three. Uh, we see this in pretty clearly Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, right? So there's this conflict going on that we don't see that Paul prepares us for, and we'll look in detail next week at Ephesians 6 um, as he gives us some help on that. Uh, Revelation 12, 17, again, Satan went off to make war with those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So clearly there is a conflict between Satan and his demons and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, that's what's going on. Letter D, uh, the conflict between Satan and the lost is our fourth category. We've looked at some of this already. Uh, Acts 26, 18, that they were formerly under the power of Satan and in darkness. Second uh, Corinthians 4, 4, it describes that Satan has blinded their minds. They cannot see the light of the gospel of Christ. And again, as we saw earlier, Ephesians 2, verse 2, 
they were following the prince of the power of the air. So it's clear conflict between between them going on. And conflict may be a strong word because there may not be much of a conflict there, but nonetheless there is some some sort of fight going on. Even unbelievers have fights against their own desires and flesh and temptations that come at them, though though they may be unsuccessful um, in, in, in overcoming those things. So I guess it's true to still call it conflict. All right. Number 32. How do Satan and demons interact with humanity? There's... Um, there's just taking a few phrases out of scripture. We get, a, uh, again, not exhaustive list, but we get some of them. They are said to oppress people. Uh, Mark one thirty-two. it says here that the evening sundown they brought to him, speaking of Jesus, all who were sick and oppressed by demons. Uh, letter B, they're said to enter into people. That's uh, Luke 8, verse 30. Jesus had asked him, what is your name? He said, legion, for many demons had entered him. Again, all this language will kind of break down in a minute. Um, letter C, they're said to speak through human beings. They even use their voices. We see that in Mark one twenty four. This is Jesus interacting here with an individual who comes up and then says, what have you to do with us? So there's a singular person using the word us. Okay, so obviously there's something going on vocally there. Uh, have you come to destroy us? That's not the person now speaking. That's the demon speaking through the person. So we see that happening occasionally in Scripture. Um, letter D, um, Luke 8, 38, we find that they are said to go out of people. The man with whom the demon had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. And so they were begging to go away. Lastly, E, they're said to fill, fill hearts. With ideas, this is Acts 5.3. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Uh, the language there is, why has, why has Satan filled your heart, your heart for you to lie? So there's an implication of culpability there. You and I had this conversation a little bit on email. That there does seem to be some indication in Scripture that there can be um, filling of ideas into the thoughts and minds. Uh, temptations can come that way. Obviously, you yourself have experienced, I'm sure, being tempted with thoughts in your head. It didn't come from a person to you, but just popped into your head. Uh, that's kind of what seems to be indicated here in Acts 5.3. All right? All right. Bigger question. Now, can unbelievers be possessed? All right. I did a lot of work on this this week, so just stick with me for a moment. There is sometimes in, in, your, in your translations of the scriptures, words are used, and also in just Christian culture words get used, and you just assume that they're biblical or assume that they're used. Um, I don't like the word possessed. I don't think it's actually a biblical term, though I know that in my ESV there's, there's some passages that translate it that way. Um, I'll give you this, and then I'll explain why, why I hold to this. They can be demonized or demon-influenced or even indwelled by demons, but not demon-possessed. Not demon-possessed, contrary to, again, what Hollywood would tell you. Um, in all the previous passages we just looked at, we're not told anywhere about demons possessing anyone. Uh, in fact, several times in Scripture, people are, people are said to have a demon, but demons are never said to have people. Those are two very different things. Okay, let me say that again. Uh, scripture does give us indications that, that um, people are said to have a demon, but demons are never said to have people. Right? And that, again, have is I did to possess in that way. Um, Luke 4.33 says here there was a man who had 
the spirit of an unclean demon. Matthew 8, 28, and this is, this is the one that gives you the translation here. It says here there was two demon-possessed men that met him. Um, I think it's an unhelpful translation. Matter of fact, that possessed word is demon-possessed is used six times in Scripture. It's used in Mark, it's used in Matthew, and it's used in Luke. And, um, and in all three descriptions, all times the word is used is the same story. Okay, this, this is the one story where that word is used is the garrison, you know, the guys who were hanging out the tombs, um, who were, um, as Pastor Ed was saying this morning, or I guess, no, I think it was, no, it was, uh, it was Ben who was saying that used to be him hanging out in the alley, you know, barely clothed. Um, that was, that's the description there, Matthew 8, uh, Luke 8 as well has that description. Um, the word has a sense of being under the influence of a demon. If you even look at, at least my ESV version actually has a footnote. If you look at those passages and go to the bottom, there's a footnote. And it actually transliterates the word out for you. And if you look at it, you can see it. It's Greek language. But when it's transliterated out, the word literally means demonized. So I just like to use that word, demonized. I think it's a good word to even use. Um, when we use the word possessed to describe someone in this condition, it gives the impression that the person is completely under the control of demon or demons and have no choice but to succumb to whatever they want. Uh, ultimately, this impression does not square with most of the biblical accounts. Again, the only two passages that seem to go against that or, or give us an indication of something different is two of them. Luke 4, 33-36, is in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon who cried out with a loud voice, whatever you do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? And I know who you are. And Jesus rebuked him, be silent, come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. They're all amazed and said to one another, what is this word with authority and power? He commands unclean spirits and they, and they come out. The other passage is uh, a little bit longer, sorry, let me go back there. Luke 8, um, this is verses 27 through 38. This is, uh, they stepped out on, onto land and they met a man from the city who had demons. Now Luke's account gives us one and Matthew's account gives us there's two of them actually going on here. Uh, so they had, they wore no clothes. They had lived out, uh, not lived in a house, but among tombs. And it says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. So with a loud voice, what have we to do with, do with me? I beg you, don't torment me. Uh, he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Okay. He goes and describe what he, what he many times had done. It seized him, kept him under guard, bound with chains and shackles. He would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to, not to command them to depart into the abyss. A lot of part of that verse. This is the part where there's the herd of pigs. Remember the story? Cast them out. 200 pigs go do a swan dive off of the, uh, off the edge of the uh, cliff and fall down and drown. Um, and again, describes the very last thing, how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Um, both of these stories, um, the men had lost control, it seems, of mental faculties are used by demons as their mouthpiece. Um, in other occurrences in Scripture, people have physical symptoms, but nothing indicating they had lost these aspects or robbed of them. The only evidence of demonic activity in these two men um, is with their actions and words, but they're still in control. They're still culpable. Um, I think that's really why I don't like the word possessed because it implies a lack of culpability. Well, I mean, the devil made me do it, right? I mean, I had no choice in this matter, and there's a sense of no culpability. It's all of them doing it. Um, all the rest of the scripture seems to indicate there is personal responsibility. So, terms like demonic attack, 
or demonic influence or demonic oppression or being demonized, I think are more closely related to what the evidence in Scripture seems to hold. Um, people like to bring up Judas as an example, um, how Satan entered into Judas, it says there in John 13. Um, again, remember that even though he did that and Satan was very much involved, Judas was still able to carry on a conversation at the table. Um, he was still able to go persuade the religious leaders and take their money. I and mean, he was very much in control of the situation, though Satan was very much involved um, as well. Same with Ananias in Acts 5. Still able to plan, still able to figure out how much money we're going to keep back as we sell the property. Um, Peter, same thing, uh, was called Satan by Jesus. That was always an interesting phrase, get behind me, Satan. And even though he was very much involved in that situation, by remember, remember Peter was trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, like, oh, I'll stop him, you know. And that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So obviously it was satanic activity going on. Peter still was culpable, still responsible for his actions. All right. Number 34. Can believers be possessed or controlled by demons? Uh, pretty easy answer to that one, I believe. Uh, cannot be controlled, indwelled, or possessed by demons. Cannot be controlled, indwelled, or possessed. I don't believe possessed can happen in any case, but it can't be controlled or indwelled. Maybe it's a better description of that. We find, uh, I gave you a few reasons there uh, in your passage, uh, or in your, in your notes. Uh, letter A, sin is said to not have dominion over Christians anymore. They still sin, but it's not dominating them. Um, as it once was before they came to Christ. We find that in uh, Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you. It's not under law, but under grace. Uh, letter B, God is said to dwell among his people. We see that um, in uh, 2 Corinthians 6.15-16. It says here, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Um, and so we have that God walking amongst his people, being amongst his people. Again, kind of hard to imagine that Satan is going to be somehow walking among them with him. Um, we find um, letter C, the Spirit of God has taken up residence in the heart of the believer. And again, the Spirit of God who lives in believers is stronger than Satan. This will make um, good arguments for the fact that it's hard for Satan to dwell in the same place that the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling. It says here that we're God's temple, God's Spirit that dwells in us. We all see also see that First John 4.4, 4, uh, you are from God, you have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So there's clear indications there of what's going on in the believer's heart. You do not fear demonic indwelling. Um, again, attack, yes, um, but not internally. It says, um, letter D there, believers are, are, are owned by God, assistance of his kingdom, right? We've transferred as Colossians would say, from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. Someone's having a hard time in the nursery tonight, if you notice that. <laughs> we have to pray for them. That's, that sounds like a rough night. Um, <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, uh, again, similar passage. The Holy Spirit is the temple is within us. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So, so glorify God in your body. You've been purchased by him. You've been transferred by him. You're owned by him. Um, letter E, Jesus plundered Satan and set God's people free from his dominion. That's part of what the story implies in Matthew 12. When he talks about the strong man's house, unless he is first bound, binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And that, in, that, that passage is speaking of satanic activity and Jesus going and clearing the house out. Um, letter F, 
We have a pretty clear statement. We have overcome the evil one. Uh, again, face attack, but we have overcome him. First John 2, 13-14, you have overcome the evil one. It says, because you were strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It says it twice in two verses, right? We've overcome him. Um, he has no ownership of us anymore. He has no longer has any rights to us anymore, right? There was a sense of rights prior to Christ. When you come to Christ, you've been transferred. You've, you've gone over the, you've crossed enemy lines, right? You've been brought over to the other side. He's no longer ruling um, over you, as was the case before when you were of, of darkness. Um, letter G, he's unable to touch God's people. We see that in uh, 1 John 5, 18. Again, the evil one does not touch him. Uh, there's a sense there of just that personal closeness. Again, apart from God's sovereignty, there is no activity there happening. So, um, yeah. But, but Job got touched. He did. Pretty closely. He did, pretty closely, yeah. <laughs> just like get you smile. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I think it's more of speaking of again, um, obviously within God's permission, um, the evil one God protects him. Um, God still protected Job. Even though he was allowed to be touched in that way, he still protected them, I think is what the point of that is. Um, not in a um, um, he again he's not a sovereign being, autonomous being, able to touch the people of God. He is under God's control and if God still allows it will happen, but God will still keep his people. I think would be the best way to put that. But yeah, good question. Um, true. Yeah, because that, that's off limits. As I said before, Satan has never taken anybody from God. Yeah. He's never stolen his children. He said in John 10, I've got in my hand. No, no one, or that includes demonic or satanic activity, can take them out of my hand. I've got them. Right? Um, the two passages that come to mind as possible... Uh, arguments against this view uh, would be an example of Saul in the Old Testament, an example of the woman uh, bent over, she's uh, for 18 years, been tormented uh, in Luke's account in Luke 13. Um, let's deal with first um, the first Samuel uh, passage and uh, the passages from first Samuel 16 and 19. We find Saul. Now there's considerable debate of going like, well, I don't even think Saul was a believer. And you're probably, I'd, I'd lean that way. I think that's probably the case. But there's some people who say, like, Saul was definitely a believer, and clearly he was indwelled by demons. Uh, but if you look at the language, you'll see external attack and not internal. There's words like terrorized him, on you, not in you, uh, came to Saul, upon him, and on him. But there's nothing about internal, there's nothing going in, there's no indwelling, there's no presence. Even if you want to argue that he was a believer, I think even the language even implies that it was all external in that way. Uh, same with Luke 13, um, 10, um, sorry, Luke, Luke 13, I'll look at verse 11 and 16. The whole passage is 10 through 17. But here we find this lady, the disabling spirit, had um, for 18 years, and uh, she's bent over, could not fully straighten herself. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? People argue here, but this is a believer, because, you know, the phrase of daughter of Abraham, I think that's, I would, I would argue that's probably not the case. I think it's speaking more of, uh, of Jewish ethnicity and culture as opposed to a statement of salvation. I think it's a statement of salvation. Um, either way, even again, looking at the passages, again, is, a, is an external thing and not an internal um, aspect going on. So another thing, just take it all together, uh, never in the New Testament epistles are believers warned 
about the possibility of demon inhabitation, um, inhabiting them, even though Satan and demons are discussed frequently in the New Testament. There's no warning given to them. Never in the New Testament epistles are believers instructed about how to cast out demons, either from believers or unbelievers. There's no, there's no instruction given to that in the epistles and moving forward for the church. Okay. All right, question 35. Can believers be attacked and influenced? Yes. <laughs> um, they can attack, they can tempt, uh, they can influence God's people. That's very real. That's very, something very sobering reality we should know about. Again, we have no need to fear them, um, as God is completely sovereign over that, and God is going to protect his own, but it does understand that that's a very real thing that happens. Um, it seems uh, we, we get, again, this passage from First Chronicles 21.1. <laughs> Poor nursery worker. Uh, Satan stood against Israel and incited David uh, to number Israel, right? So there is some satanic activity there. Um, we find in Second Corinthians 12.7, which we saw already, a messenger of Satan to harass me, Paul speaking there. Um, Ephesians 4.26-27 speaks of uh, don't let don't give an opportunity to the devil or the word can be translated foothold for the devil to have some some involvement into that relationship going on there bitterness and anger uh, first Thessalonians 218 it says uh, it just keeps getting louder and louder um, just just cranking up here just getting going um, yeah no I'm sorry um, yeah um, it says uh, it says here, Paul says that he was hindered by Satan, right? In trying to visit the church, he tried to get there, but he couldn't. Satan's claim, he perceived that Satan, or God told him that Satan was hindering him. First uh, Peter 5, 8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so, uh, so while some uh, teach uh, that through personal sin, or maybe generational sin, or curses, that demons can have authority to dominate believers. There's that, that teaching is alive and real out there. People do hold to that. Uh, scripture seems to be clear that Christians are never under the ruling authority of darkness. Okay, that doesn't happen. Uh, the devil can, can never take authority over a Christian. Really, Christians may be deceived, they may be accused, they may be tempted, and they may even yield to attacks that they don't have to, and they have, they have the power of, of God to not, not do that. Um, Examples will include Peter again in Matthew 16, Ananias in Acts 5. Um, the children of God regenerated and dwelt by the Spirit of God. We are responsible to and empowered to by God to resist Satan. Uh, and if we and we don't need to suffer from his influence if we follow God and, and continue to pursue him in that way. And we'll talk about next class more, more information about what that looks like. Right? All right, question 36. Demonic strongholds, maybe, maybe you're familiar with that phrase, maybe you're not, but again, I'm just trying to give you what's taught out in the Christian world. Um, this is where the word of God um, is absent, and the people of God who are indwelled by the Spirit of God are missing. Demonic activity is more rampant, right? And we looked at that already, we've seen that a little bit uh, in Scripture. Some people talk about territorial spirits uh, that dominate or influence a particular area. They get that from like Daniel, where there seems to be some influence, and there does seem to be some credence to that in Scripture, that there is more demonic activity in places where the Word of God is absent. Remember back when we were describing demons, we talked about how they were called desert creatures and those kind of things. They're in places where there's lack of water, 
Water is always in the Old Testament a place where God's word and God's people are present. Uh, it's a place of refreshment and, and, and the spirit of God is active. When you find places, and it explains why in missionary you know, journeys and missionaries and their biographies, how they faced all these crazy demonic activities. You get into these uh, places in the middle of the jungle where the word of God is completely absent and there's all kinds of demonic activity going on. Uh, there does seem to be ramped up uh, more prominent understandings of that and more prominent activities of Satan uh, in, in demons in those places. And, and some of the passages that describe that, I will read the whole thing to you here, but Daniel 10, uh, the whole chapter really, but just give you a few of those verses. We have here uh, Daniel being visited by an angel. The angel said to him in the middle of that passage there, it says, Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God. Your words have been heard, have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me. I was left there with the kings of Persia, plural, that describes demons, and came to make you understand what, this is, is hap what is to happen to your people in latter days. Same chapter, a few verses later, Daniel 10, 18-21, describes here in this one the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. So we find here um, demons apparently have the capacity to bring about hindrances and delays, um, even... Delivery of answers to believers' prayers are hindered, it says here, or stopped by these angels delivering that. We find them um, in these kind of places. Uh, there are these nations that are described in Daniel, be it Greece, be it Persia, were, were ungodly nations, and demons were seen to be kind of stronger in those areas where the word of God and the people of God are absent. Uh, the word stronghold, where that word comes from, is actually from 2 Corinthians 10. So let's look at that for a moment. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, describes this and says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy, and here's the word, strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Paul mentions here that these spiritual weapons with which Christians fight, again, very similar language to Ephesians 6, actually, all have the power to destroy strongholds. And again, though, that, though this is, uh, doesn't mention demonic activity explicitly, it is, seems to be implied, and you take Ephesians 6 with it, it seems to be a pretty good argument for it. In those days, a stronghold was a place where an enemy was firmly entrenched, and they were difficult to uproot. Right? They found a place where they were hard to be beaten, and they would kind of just gather all their troops into one spot and kind of hold that place. And that's seems to be applied from a demonic standpoint. There's more demonic activity in the places where, where again, the word of God is lacking and where this people of God, the spirit of God is not there. Um, and so we find that they're, they, they're behind. He goes on to describe this arguments and lofty opinions. They're behind and active in the world system of thoughts, the godless philosophies and distorted systems of belief and false religions that plague the world. That seems to be the stronghold that they hold. It's more ideological um, than it is, you know, um, aggressively physical, I guess, in any way. It's more ideological. It's more systems of thought among people that they hold a stronghold among people uh, where they, they get captivated by the, the false thoughts and false theology and false ideas about both himself and, and the world. All right? Pastor, yeah. Take hold of us and keep, up, keep us captive. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think you end up in a society that's, you know, we are, it's not as much Indiana coming from L.A. It's definitely the case. It makes its way here. It seems whatever happens on the coast makes its way to the middle of the United States. It usually happens there first and gets its way here. And we obviously can see the surrounding areas from New York to L.A., uh, kind of more more of a, a, a we call a post-Christendom culture. Christendom is a missiological term for kind of an area where Christianity has kind of reigned. Um, you get that kingdom kind of phrase with that Christendom. It's kind of reigned as the overall, it doesn't mean everybody was believers in that context, but, but it, was, it was kind of the dominant religion or it was the majority of the people were, you know, Christians. And the more that goes away, the more you find more, more kind of godless ideologies and godless ideas, um, and you find more activity in those places. And so the people of God, they're in those kind of places. And those in, infiltrate us because in a, in a world of modern media, and instant information coming at you, you can be in a place, you can be off in a commune somewhere and just, just, just with a bunch of believers and still have internet and you can get all kinds of ideologies coming at you that are demonic in its source, right? So yeah, it can be individual in that way as well because it's coming to like a system of thought. Guilt. I'm just thinking of like false guilt. Absolutely. You have to talk truth to yourself every day when you're just walking along and all of a sudden you're yeah, I, I, I was, thought and you're like... I was just in, I was in a counseling session today and I was talking about this and this was I I, I like reading books you may, may or may or may not know that about me but um, I like reading old stuff I do I like reading dead people it's actually really cool and um, I was reading some stuff on old monks uh, this is what I do for fun and um, and it was interesting they had this today it, it, it's turned into you know there's a lot of things that happen like in churches or even like higher higher church hierarchy even like Catholic church where there's a lot of um, um, What's the word? Just kind of uh, repetitive statements that people just make that don't mean much, yeah. just mantras. Well, originally, back in the Middle Ages, the monks had started this thing they called breath prayers. That's what they call them, breath prayers. You can look this up. And they, what they did, they were just simple statements of Scripture. Breath prayers meaning as much as I can say in a breath. So you're talking like four or five seconds, right? Is how much I can take in a breath. That long of a statement that they would memorize, a pat, like a verse, and, and you know... Um, Hebrews 13, you know, um, um, God would never leave me or forsake me. Something like that, real simple. And they would repeat that to themselves verbally out loud. Um, they could do that in a commune. You do it today, you may, they, people may arrest you for being crazy. But if you walk around, God is for me, not against me. God is for me, not against me. What is wrong with that person? Um, the, uh, they've lost it. Um, but they would do that. They would just repeat those statements to themselves. They would call them breath prayers. They just would just say them sometimes three or four times, sometimes a hundred times, just to get that, that understanding of that word of God back into, just to convince themselves, even to preach themselves, as Paul, um, David did in the Psalms, is important and part of that, um, going against that conflict. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, let's see. Number 37. How did people in the New Testament handle... Demonic activity. All right. Pop culture gives the remedy for demonic activity as exorcism, right? That's the fancy, sexy way of handling it, right? Yeah, got some exorcism there going on. That's kind of sells books and sells movies. Um, the more common biblical remedy is, unfortunately, to modern culture, it's preparation and resistance, actually. That seems to be more of the, the, uh, the place that we are to be in as opposed to the exorcism route okay uh, in movies exorcisms are usually uh, exorcists are usually part roman catholic priest and part magician right they kind of have a little bit of both 
Um, they engage demons in spiritual battle. They've been specially gifted or called using things like holy water and Latin incantations and crucifixes, right? And this is going to give back the demons. You probably know what I'm talking about. You need to be careful of those. Uh, David Pallison um, said the following, a great deal of fiction, superstition, fantasy, nonsense, nuttiness, and downright heresy forces in the church under the guise of spiritual warfare in our time. Again, our Christian lives need to be more shaped, shaped by less a spectacular view of the devil's work and more of a sober sense of who he is and what he's doing. Again, trying to unmask the deceit that he's going about. It's usually not overt as much as it is subtle. Um, let's look at three categories. How did Jesus experience them? How did the apostles do so? And how is the church called to do so? Um, first of all, they, uh, Jesus commanded them to come out. So he had that authority. He commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Acts, I'm sorry, Luke 8, 29. Um, he also silenced them. We see in the same book, Luke 4, 41, he totally rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. So he had the authority just to make them stop talking, you know. Um, he had that authority. Uh, Mark 5, 13, he gave them, he can even grant them permission to do certain things. Uh, Mark 5 is where he granted them permission to go into pigs and jump off the edge of the cliff, right? Uh, he rebuked them, Luke 9, 42, uh, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. Um, also, we find Jesus casting them out in, in Matthew 8, 16. He says he cast out um, the spirits. Uh, we also see he thwarted their work, and he could actually do this, interestingly enough, um, Matthew 15, 22 to 28, he could do it from a distance. He could stop demonic activity without even being present to stop demonic activity. <laughs> uh, this, this lady came and said, her you know, daughter... Um, Kenneth woman came, have mercy on me, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. The, the passage indicates she's not there. Jesus said, a woman, your grace, your faith, be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly, though she wasn't present with Jesus, right? He could just heal from a distance. He could cast out demons from a distance, right? He had complete authority um, over them. Um, he is said to release people from, from demonic activity and demonic work. Here she was said to be loosed from the bondage. Um, and finally, he healed people uh, from demonic oppression, Luke 6, 18 through 19. He healed them. Um, he saw uh, the crowds there had unclean spirits were cured by him. Okay, so this is part of Jesus' absolute authority and power over that. we got to be careful, as with anything in Scripture, just, you know, people say, well, Jesus did it, therefore I can do it. There's all kinds of problems with that. I mean... He died for people's sins. I don't think you can do that, right? He walked on water. That's always an easy one. Like, you can't do that. So, I mean, just don't assume because Jesus did, therefore we do it. Okay? So just to be careful with that, that kind of um, hermeneutics that you apply there. Uh, letter B, disciples now experience. We find them having uh, some authority as well. Uh, Luke 9, 1, it says, but notice this, he, speaking of Jesus, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So he, he gave that to them as a special task as he sent them out. We find that the case in the book of Acts, Acts 16, 18, that Paul, I love this, became greatly annoyed, and he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out that very hour, right? And so there was, that was the girl walking around saying, you know, he's uh, the, he, he, claiming who Paul actually was, you know? And he didn't like that, so he cast them out. Um, we find um, them casting out demons here again as signs. 
So they came out of many of them, and many were paralyzed or lame, were healed, Acts 8, 7. Um, they also, in, in that newfound power, by the way, they got a little too excited about it. Um, Luke 10, 19 through 20. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject, subject to you. Rejoice your names are written in, in heaven, right? And so he kind of, they came back to the passage, said they were all excited about what they could do, and he's like, hey, hold on. Don't be so excited about that. Be excited your name's written, right? Um, again, without knowing what that power will do. Uh, let us see the church's experience with demons. Now, this is interesting. As you get into the, out of the, um, narrative portions of scripture and you get into more of the prescriptive portions of scripture or sometimes called didactic portions of, or teaching portions of scripture it's usually the epistles right? narrative, gospels, acts is narrative story, these things happened they're not saying necessarily here go do this it's just saying here's what happened well the epistles are going to say here's what you need to do right? And it's a much more, much more um, um, teaching oriented or didactic in nature this is all kind of hermeneutics uh, so nowhere in scripture are post-resurrection believers commanded or explicitly encouraged to attempt to cast out demons. So passages like that. Uh, the agents with this authority seem to have been either Jesus, his apostles, or people associated with the apostles. And they're no longer here. Um, and so we, we believe that many of those kind of even special gifts or signs where they are given um, seem to have been um, ceased by, that, by this time period, uh, by the time the scripture was, was finished being written. Scriptures are, Christians are instead told to exercise faith in God through prayer, to resist the devil, arm themselves spiritually, and protect themselves. Um, we find, interestingly enough, one passage in Mark, 8, Mark 9, 29, that even the apostles didn't have complete authority, right? This one, they, they were dumbfounded that they, hey, you gave us this authority to cast out demons, and this one's not moving. Um, so this one can't be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, you need to ask me to do it, right? Um, James 4, 7, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Um, again, next week we'll explain that in more detail. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And finally, Ephesians 6, 10 uh, through 11, be strong in the Lord, strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Okay. And so we'll, we'll, we're going to break all those passages up next week and deal with those in detail. One last question to get to you. What should I do if I encounter demonic activity? I don't know if you've ever encountered that. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a normal thing, but there are times where this happens. I've had this happen on two different occasions um, where there's been that clear. I've had one case in church. I was preaching. This guy stood up in the middle of the service and started basically talking things I didn't know what he was saying. And then became very clear what he was saying, that, and he became, began to say that you know, I was teaching false, false, false stuff. I remember exactly what he said, and he was like, don't believe him. I mean, it was like this whole like, screaming, yelling thing going on. Um, we had to escort him out. Again, we always had someone interesting in there all the time. But um, we had, um, afterwards, we had to kind of meet up with him. This guy was part of our church, too. This wasn't like a, just a guy off the street. And um, so we met with him, got with him after the service. I mean, the pastors kind of got around him to pray for him. Got like, dude, what's going on? He said, I don't. He said, I don't know. I've had these thoughts in my head, these voices in my head. He's like, I'm. I was just my, my voice was telling me like that you were teaching false doctrine and da da da. And he's he just said, I just I felt I had to say it, and so I got up and said it. And um, and so the more we got around him and talked to him, the more we became very obvious as he was telling me he was, he was facing some demonic attack. 
And as the more we got into the situation, and I'll talk about some of this in a second, we had to start, like, dude, do you have anything in your life that you need to tell us? Like, is there things in your life that you're hiding? And sure enough, he's like, well, I'm not totally, and he starts talking about his pornography addiction. And he starts talking about the more I got into it, the more the voices got louder, and the more I was told I was worthless, and the more I was told that, that Jesus wasn't true and couldn't save me, and all these things were going on. And so we, you know, gathered around and prayed over him, um, and got a lot of progress after that. But that was one of those moments where you just became, yeah, that's just definitely a demonic activity going on um, in our midst. So I'd say if you, if you experience that, which you may at times, um, as you engage in missions, as you engage the lost even, even with fellow believers at times can have this kind of thing happen, don't think it's unusual, right? Um, scripture seems to indicate that there are times where demons will show themselves. It's not very common. Remember going back to Second Kings, you know, uh, there's Elisha there, remember his servant, and he kind of peeled his eyes and said, hey, look what's going on, and there was chariots of fire everywhere. There are times where they reveal themselves, they're able to see what's going on, sometimes they make themselves, maybe not visible, meaning you see them, but their activity becomes more apparent and more overt. Um, but again, it's Second Timothy 1.7, whoops, that should be Second Timothy 1.7, um, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. Letter B is uh, be sober-minded and alert. Um, pray. <laughs> you counter this kind of thing. That usually be, should be the first thing that we do. Um, is um, We think about uh, being alert and sober. We find Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Uh, alert with all perseverance. We find that, again, prayer and alertness. 1 Peter 5, 8, again, be sober-minded, be watchful. This again, be alert, uh, see what's going on, don't assume it's no big deal. Don't assume that demonic activity is not involved. It very well may be. Sometimes in counseling, dealing with people, I, I ask those questions to figure out what, what do you think, what's going on in your life? Like, what is it that you're, um, what are you experiencing? And people then tell you, like, look, I'm, I'm having these voices in my head, or I'm like, I'm really tempted to do this. Like, why are you tempted? And started realizing, you know what, there is some demonic activity going on in this person. I shouldn't be shocked by it. Um, it happens, and you should be alert to it and, and see it for what it is. Again, it doesn't eliminate culpability at all or responsibility, but it does help us understand what's going on. Um, pray together. Uh, Ephesians 6.18, again, pray at all times in the Spirit, right? Is uh, Pray if you have, you're there with other believers. If one of your friends or fellow believers is struggling with sin and, and is really feeling oppressed, sometimes it, it takes on the realm of, of darkness and depression sometimes, really deep. It doesn't quite... The things don't line up, you know? Sometimes you just experience a deep sense of darkness, and you're just like, I don't know where. I, don't, I really can't connect the dots for why I'm in this pit right now. It's just there. Well, good chances are there's, there's some demonic activity going on in those elements of darkness, right? You get believers around you to pray over you and pray together with you. Um, again, in those situations, is always to remember, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to who? Me, Jesus said. It's his, his authority, not ours. Um, we're not running around, you know, casting out demons and having authority on our own. It's all his, his authority. I think it's interesting that even, even Michael, the archangel, it says, a very interesting passage in Jude 1.9, it says, Michael, continue with the devil about the body of Moses. I'm not even going to get into what's going on there. Um, he did not presume to, bla to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So even there, we got Michael, the archangel, in some conflict with Satan, and he himself is not even going rebuking Satan. He's saying the Lord rebuke you, right? He's not even claiming authority um, in that way. Uh, letter D, 
read scripture out loud. If you feel some, feel some demonic oppression in people or attack on people, read scripture out loud. It's called the sword of the spirit for a reason. Um, it's useful to, particularly useful to read passages that teach about Christ's victory um, over the evil one. Passages like 1 John 3, 8. Um, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, again, the cross is, the, is, is what, what defeated them and what has defeated them. Colossians 2.15 says he put him to open shame. He triumphed over them in him. Uh, letter E. Sorry, I'm going through this quickly because we're running out of time. Uh, call for confession. I told you a minute ago what we did with that one young man. Um, sometimes Satan can get a hold, a foothold. That kind of even that, that passage in uh, Ephesians 4, uh, 26 to 27, can uh, give the opportunity to the devil, uh, give the opportunity to the devil, can come from anger, an idea of bitterness that is unresolved. And they can prey upon that kind of thing. Um, you know, I've, I've experienced that kind of deep darkness in my own life. I've experienced the whole, um, the, the old Puritans used to call it the, the dark night of the soul. And um, I've experienced those. And mine, I can tie back to, I was having a very, very frustrated and very angry at some things. Things were going the way I wanted them to go. Uh, the churches were imploding and things were just going chaotic. I needed, it was like a messenger from Satan. I needed to be humbled by that. It was actually one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life. Um, I would never want to do it again, but, um, but it was good for me, but I went down to a deep hole, and, um, and I needed to, to kind of confess that anger and that bitterness that I had with other people of God to kind of see, see God bring light to that. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Such an important verse to memorize. You will not prosper by concealing your sin. You will not prosper, Right? You think you will, that's why you conceal it. Well, if I don't tell anybody, I'll, it'll be better. Right? And it's exactly the opposite of what Scripture says. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Uh, James 5.16, 5, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Right? Lastly, letter F there, remember and rest. This is uh, remembering that Jesus is the most powerful person in any given room, in any given situation. Um, it's very important to understand that aspect. Acts 19, 13. If you're going to run into a demonic situation, you're going to see that. Make sure you're a believer. <laughs> Acts 19. Some guys tried to try to do exorcism, right? And they try to do that thing, and they got they end up having to run out the door without any clothes on. Actually, uh, as the passage describes it, they were seven sons of a Jewish high priest. So, um, but we need not fear them. First John 4, 4. He who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Right. Any final questions? I'll email you that material. i got more stuff for you than that, but unfortunately it's my six weeks or so, seven. Play a little baseball. Yeah. I know that Jesus has the body here and how can do that too. Like, and Yes, they can make themselves visible at times, yes. I know demons are not like Sure, they can. Yeah, okay, I can, God can grant that if they like. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 mean, I know my, my wife has experienced that on two different occasions. I know. I know my wife has experienced that on two different occasions. And I like, yeah, um, appear and disappear element. What's that? Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Father, thank you for our time together. Uh, bless us as we go out tonight. Uh, can you encourage us to stand strong in our faith? 
uh, to trust your word, to dig into your word, uh, and uh, seek to be close uh, to you and to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.